Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Dead Pundits Society. Joining me on the program is Raphael Kachaturian. He just recently wrote a long dissertation on today's topic, which is Marxian and Neo-Marxian state theory. What is the capitalist state, you ask? I'm glad you asked because we're going to answer that in much more Stay tuned. Many of my longtime listeners will know that I have been teasing this episode for quite some time. Why, you might ask? Is it because I study neo-Marxian state theory? Well, yes, of course it is, in part. But there's also a more fundamental reason, because the political vision... The new left agenda that I'm trying to build in many ways is very much structured on a a particular kind of understanding of the relationship of classes to the state, to the capitalist state. Like, what is the capitalist state? How does it work? How does it articulate certain inter and intra-class dynamics, right? So before I get too far into the weeds, I'm going to take a big, giant step back. State theory is all about relating class power to state power and how those two things interact and intersect to produce the world that we live in. So joining me is Raphael Kachaturian. I'm going to introduce him in the interview segment, so I won't waste too much more time here. This is going to be part one. In this episode, we're going to cover state theory from Marx to Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci is a figure that many of you will know or have at least heard of. If not, we're going to break it down for you. Part two is going to follow in a couple of days. We're going to cover uh, around Gramsci to present. So stay tuned for that in the next couple of days. In addition, there's going to be a Patreon-only B-side, which is an exclusive subscriber-only kind of sit-down fireside chat that I'm going to have with Raphael really uh, bringing out some of the most important aspects of this conversation because we really go deep and we go long. And uh, so I wanted to bring Raphael on for my patrons to really tease out the most, you know, essential aspects of state theory and to maybe clarify some things that maybe we wish we might have done better. So head on over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and subscribe at the $5 or $8 level. And you'll get access to the B-sides as well as my hot takes and field notes and all of the extended footage that you're going to get over there for being a member. I'm really beefing up my offerings on the Patreon page in the last couple of weeks. And I'm going to keep that coming. I'm going to try to bring some subscriber-only content every single week to reward my patrons. That's also going to give me some flexibility to have some fun with my guests and uh, maybe do some more, have some more kind of unorthodox interview approaches like I did with Nando Vila last week where we talked about the intersection of soccer and politics. So head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits. You know what to do. Without further ado, here is part one of my interview with Raphael Kachaturian on Marxian and Neo-Marxian State Theory. Enjoy. Ever hear of Karl Marx? 
In his mind, communism was born more than a hundred years ago. He looked at the world and saw men as divided into two classes, workers and capitalists. In the Communist Manifesto, he called upon the workers, the proletarians, to rise up and overthrow their capitalistic masters. He cried, the proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Working men of all countries, unite. This was the promise and the challenge of communism. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me this week is Rafael Kachaturian. He is recently mented PhD from Indiana University in the Department of Political Science. He's currently a research associate at the University of Pittsburgh. His dissertation touched on conceptualizations of the state and the history of American political science. And you can find his writings in places like Descent, Jacobin, Logos, and many other dusty academic journals. Raphael, thanks so much for joining us on the Dead Pundit Society. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I've been teasing my audience for some weeks now about this episode that we're going to be doing on uh, Marxist or neo-Marxian state theory. I've had some listeners sort of remind me, re- you know, recently that, come on, you know, stop teasing us. Let's give us the goods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to talking about this stuff. Yeah, so both you and I have a pretty extensive background in state theory. At least it's a, it's an interest of mine. Your your background is far more uh, authorized at this point, being a, a recent PhD than mine. So I'm excited to talk about this stuff. So, just in short, you know, um, you had a piece that appeared in Logos. Mm-hmm. I'll post that up on the show notes, and I think it's really good and it's accessible. You don't you don't hold any punches in terms of being you know, involved in the academic debates, but it's widely accessible. You integrate uh, recent politics and other types of movements that people will be familiar with. And in that piece, you it's called On Thinking With and Against the State. I'll put that up on the show notes for listeners to check out. But you really prefaced the entire piece indicating that Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and the kind of excitement that that sort of flourished around that project, leading to the explosive growth in DSA, for example, has really reinvigorated debates that you you write uh, that make it important for those in favor of progressive social change to once again consider how to approach the state. Do we understand it as a bulwark against neoliberalism? Is it a repressive apparatus to be smashed? Is it perhaps an institution to be systematically democratized or is it something else entirely? End quote. So uh, mm-hmm. I won't make you answer all these questions right up front. We'll be considering <laughs> those throughout the show. But tell us a little bit about uh, this political moment and why you think that uh, it's important to bring the state back into the debate. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question. Um I think that this is actually a very, very exciting political moment for the left um, just, you know, in the last year or two. Um, and uh, one of the reasons why, and maybe the re- main reason, is because the left is now organizing in a way that seemed inconceivable just, you know, 10 years ago. Um, we, you know, the growth of DSA that you mentioned is one such moment. Um, and because of that, we are actively sort of, I think, reengaging with certain tactical and strategic debates about how um, democratic movements on the left should uh, approach this question of state power. Um, you know, in a way that perhaps, again, 10, 15 years ago, there was this, I think, um, tendency to reject the state offhand and to focus primarily on 
local movements and you know cultivating local community power. Whereas now, um, because um, the left has grown, it actually has to grapple with, I think, fairly difficult questions of, you know, how do we approach existing institutions? Um, how do we um, orient ourselves strategically towards them in order to, you know, see the kind of more democratic society that we that we want to see. So it's exciting. It's also, I think, opens up a series of new challenges that we um, don't necessarily have easy answers to. And I think part of the, you know, this problem that I alluded to in the title of my article of, you know, we have to think with the state, we, we have to think of, um, you know, in terms of what is concretely there in, in institutional capacities, but also to think it in a more critical manner um, as to how we approach it. Yeah, well said. So I think uh, I'm going to uh, make explicit something that you sort of uh, implicitly threw in there for our audience. Uh, maybe one of the key touchstones you, you, you were pointing to um, in the erasure of the state or perhaps the ignorance of the state in maybe, say, the early 2000s was Hart Negri, uh, Hart Negri's mm -hmm. empire in particular, which was very popular, uh, certainly in academic circles. It even made its way, had some notoriety in activist circles around the anti-globalization uh, movement of, uh, you know, 99 and 2000 and thereafter. Mm -hmm. uh, but empire, uh, that, that thesis uh, really fell apart in the wake of 9-11 when states reasserted themselves and then maybe even more so uh, following the great recession when you saw the fed and uh, sovereign states bailing out banks and financial institutions and then of course the sovereign debt crisis that would follow thereafter so mm -hmm. let's start let's start with a history of the present before we jump back uh, to you know dusty old folks like marx and engels uh, what do you make of i mean so what i mean to say is there's been a significant reassertion of the state even in the last 15 some odd years so maybe you know let's start there and let's spell that out a little bit yeah absolutely um i think i think reassertion is a really good way of putting it because um you know, if you think about what the 90s meant, for example, for the left, the left was in the retreat. You had 1989 and the kind of end of history thesis. Um, you had um, the left feeling that it needed to adapt itself to, um, on, on one hand, a kind of um, centrist progressivism. On the other hand, um, an assertion of neo-anarchistic ways of building community power, um, focusing primarily on the local and rejecting the state as something not to be engaged with. And then, of course, as you said, 9-11 really challenged that entire paradigm. Um, the left, of course, was still very much in retreat at that point. But it, with 9-11, you have this assertion of certain sovereign prerogatives on the part of the state, um, you know, particularly the executive branch here in, in America. The, the reliance on executive orders, things like um, detainment of individuals without habeas corpus, suspension of certain rights and liberties, right. which it, kind of – The torture memos. Uh, yeah. uh, is that what you're speaking of yeah. there? The torture memos that came out that sort of justified executive exception perhaps, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And of course in political theory, you have this you have this new concern with the state of exception, right? Um, mm -hmm. The kind of uh, rising interest in analysis of sovereignty by Carl Schmitt, by Giorgio Gombin, by some of these other thinkers. And then of course – just a few years later, you have the war in Iraq, and then you have the uh, economic crisis that began unfolding in 2007, um, which then highlights the economic role of the state in managing the social order. So, you know, within the span of a decade, you have um, sort of both capacities of the state reasserting themselves, the, the capacity of the state to, you know, 
a claim to monopoly on legitimate violence and to decide on what is and is not an exceptional situation in terms of politics and security. And then, of course, the responsibility that the state asserts within you know, modern capitalist societies of maintaining some kind of economic stability. So just really quickly, well, I want to I want to front load this episode with a defense for the topic, but I don't want to bury that in the end. Uh, so tell us just in, in, in a word, we're going to come back to this over and over again and develop it with more uh, ever increasingly uh, richer detail. But, mm-hmm. but just give us a quick pitch, like why the state? Why is the state something that the left should should be concerned about? Because, there, you know, there's an element of the communist left, certainly, who sort of feels that the state it will will simply wither away uh, once capitalism uh, is overthrown. Uh, there's a, there's another element that I've noticed is gaining a lot of steam recently, uh, which is kind of like a vaguely uh, libertarian, socialist, libertarian, communist, you know, anarcho-syndicalist perhaps. But the syndicalists are perhaps even more happy to talk about the state than a lot of the libertarian socialists that I've seen recently who just mm-hmm. want to reject it. And talk, they want to talk about horizontalism. They want to talk about localism. And the state is just this repressive apparatus that, that goes hand in hand with capital that just needs to be abolished. So tell us why it is that we should care about the state and why do Developing a theory of the state in this moment is so crucial. Well, I think simply put, it's that the the question of state is the question of political power. Um, I think it's very difficult to talk about political power in any sense without engaging with the structures of power that currently exist. So whether you know you like it or not, um, the state and state apparatuses are a very much a political reality for all of modern societies. And, you know, I would push back against this tendency to assume that the state is simply going to wither away because, you know, as, as let's say, like a superstructure that sits atop certain kinds of economic or productive relations. Because we've seen, for example, in the historical example of the Soviet Union, where you did have a revolution mm-hmm. in the um, relations of production, but you did not have the withering away of the state that corresponded to it. If anything, the state apparatus became even more top loaded and, and bureaucratized. So so I think the state poses a distinct political problem that we have to engage with for these reasons. Well said. That's a really great way to preface the argument. And of course, we're going to delve into that much deeper as we go on into the episode. So you brought up a really key word there. You, you said uh, a nice piece of jargon that I think my audience is very smart. I don't take anything away from them. So they, they don't miss much, but uh, so they picked up on it, I know. But you said superstructure. Uh, so let's, that's a good place. That's a good signal, and, and you're really helping me transition here. So let's go all the way back. We, we've, we've done a history of the present really briefly, so we're going to take it back to the beginning. Now, in, in your uh, academic writing, you indicate that American political science was really uh, an outgrowth of right-wing Hegelian philosophy, political philosophy, in, in terms of a lot of the founders, the founding fathers of American political science were educated mm-hmm. in German universities, which was the case in phil- phil- uh, philosophy and sociology and all of that uh, in the late 1800s. Uh, they, you know, mm-hmm. there, there weren't any major prestigious universities in the United States at that time. If you had money, means, and uh, you were upwardly mobile, perhaps you'd go over to Germany uh, in many cases to get your uh, higher education. Um, And so a lot of those folks brought their right-wing Hegelianism over to the United States. 
But let's 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 put that to the side unless you think that Hegel has something really important to say about the state. And let's jump to uh, some appropriators of Hegel and cri- critics of Hegel, that's uh, being Marx and Engels. And you mentioned base and superstructure, so that might be a good place to go. Um, also maybe touch on the most famous statement uh, that Marx and Engels ever made on the state, which I think is a little unfortunate, but that's to be found in the, in the communist manifesto where they refer to the state as the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. So maybe delineate some of those things uh, coming out of Marx and Engels for us. Sure. So the relationship between base and superstructure is, you know, one of the, the key metaphors by which Marxist political thought has been, um, defined. And, you know, it's one of the, the kind of lasting legacies of Marxism. Marx, you know, rarely used um, those same metaphors, although his 1859 uh, preface to the critique of political economy, um, which is a, you know, very, fairly short essay, it's only a few pages long, you know, uh, has that as a central aspect of it. But basically, um, the way that the base superstructure relationship has been theorized is that there is a certain primacy to the mode of production, the, that is the the way that a society organizes its dominant uh, relationships of producing the resources that human beings need to sustain themselves. So, um, you know, food, shelter, general uh, social wealth, which becomes more and more of a priority in the capitalist mode of production. But um, on top of those, so if you think of it as a kind of uh, vertical metaphor, you have superstructures such as um, primarily the state and the kind of legal juridical system that the state, you know, captures in its totality, um, as well as culture, the arts, music, dominant ideologies, and um, basically sort of more spiritual or you could say intangible phenomena that Marx argues previous philosophers had mistaken for the actual essence of human development. Mm -hmm. So that's maybe where Hegel comes in, perhaps. You can maybe say uh, where Hegel sort of positioned himself on that with respect to the state and in Marx's critique of that? Would that be an appropriate place to bring that in? Uh, no, absolutely. Um, because, you know, one of the, the ways that Marx presents his relationship to Hegel is to stand Hegel on his feet, making the argument that Hegel was correct in seeing that there was a certain progressive development or at least unfolding of certain human relations, but that he mistook the development of the spirit or Geist as the, uh, the underlying force rather than actual productive relations. Hmm. Um, and since you mentioned the uh, kind of right-wing Hegelians that were very influential for American political science in the late uh, 1800s, uh, many of them actually used the term the state to denote something that would consider to be a cultural or spiritual totality of, hmm. of a peoples or a nation as they kind of undergo a progressive historical development from tribal society to city-states, and eventually to the modern nation-state. So there was this kind of a, I argue, a substantial Hegelian element to to the origins of thinking about the state in America during that time. Interesting. And that, and that, and that not to get too far off topic here, we'll return to Marx and Engels specifically in just a moment, but this is relevant because you argue uh, quite persuasively, I think your major contribution here is to say that actually state State theories, theories and conceptions of the state are not just ideas, right, that people sort of come up with, but they they are intertwined with the political uh, moment of, of that time. And so you, you mm-hmm. sort of indicate then that these right Hegelians who are coming over from Germany and, and instituting this uh, disciplinary apparatus of political science in the U.S., 
that they that they develop that kind of cultural spiritualist notion of the state as a collectivity of people and and the development thereof uh, as as a project of nation building, right? That the the United the this American state is beginning to define itself. Um, and it's, it's beginning to try to understand itself as a, as a collective entity. So what role do you think, uh, that, that plays uh, for this? So what was going on in, uh, the United States during this time was that the country was recovering from, uh, devastating civil war. And what the, what these scholars wanted to do was to envision a new national unity that could transcend previously existing divisions within American society. And one of the ways that they did that was then to posit the state as a metaphor that would unify the nation, the American nation, by emphasizing certain common um, elements that, you know, cultural elements that people shared. And of course, the American state was still fairly weak at that point in time, you know, compared to its 20th century manifestation. So uh, in a way, they were I argue that what they were doing had a performative element to it in the sense that they posited something that was not quite in existence at the moment in order then to see it through in a partially by, you know, even um, political science programs in the United States functioning as training grounds for civil servants. So for future practitioners of of the state as a discipline. Interesting. So it kind of espouses an aspirational goal. Uh, for mm-hmm. for what the state would become, what the American state would become, and how people who were trained in uh, this discipline uh, would sort of envision their role uh, in in developing these institutions. And as you rightly point to, we'll, we'll, we'll probably come back to this because we're getting a little out of the timeline, and that's my fault. But uh, you can't talk about one thing without talking about everything. That's the way this goes. So, uh, But a lot of their progeny, if you will, the second generation you point to, were the ones who developed these robust and much stronger um, progressive era institutions uh, in the in the American context. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. The it, With the progressive era, then you have this this new problem of um, not only how do we, you know, how do we create the state as an idea and convince people that it's actually there, but how do we actively apply state institutions to the shaping of society in a way that you know, aligns with our own self-conception of democracy and of republicanism. So you have a kind of, um, I think, a progressive acceptance of the reality of the state, while, interestingly enough, later on, they stop talking about the state. But we can get back to that at some other point and return to Marx now, if you want. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And I wanted to jump ahead because I wanted to spell this out for people, right? That this is not, that the conceptions of the state that you you you, you consistently draw our attention in your writings to, and I, I love this about that, the conceptions of the state are are intimately intertwined uh, with, and they coincide necessarily with the kind of political, uh, class, uh, cultural, social demands and and, and aspirations, in, indeed, as you point to, uh, of that time. And so let's take, I wanted to point that out by, by, you know, in the American context, but let's go back to Marx and Engels here. So you pointed to the base and superstructure model. It's something that's attributed to Marx. Uh, there are people, politi- particularly the political Marxists, if people know about the political Marxists, Ellen Mason's Wood, George Comnell, Robert Brenner, Bob Brenner, they sort of say, ah, oh, yeah, that was kind of a throwaway line by Marx, right? Like he talked about the different modes of production. There was the slave mode of production, the feudal mode of production, and then now there's capitalism. And so the mode of production is the base. 
And then the superstructure arises on top of the base, which as you pointed to is this kind of cultural, legal, political, spiritual apparatus that sort of sits on top. As you say, it's it's sort of a vertically structured model. Mm -hmm. But that's really something that was taken up by by early Marxists in in a really uh, important way. First of all, I think maybe because it was just a sort of easy thing to to understand, to conceptualize, right? It also drives uh, certain conceptions about like, Okay, so if this is what the state looks like, if it's a base and superstructure, which is the state, sits on top of the base, well, then what you need to do then is you need to attack the base and the superstructure will crumble. So it also implies, what I'm getting at is it, it implies certain tactical positions as well. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, so um, I, I think that uh, by the you know late 19th century, you have a gradual acceptance of this kind of model and you know people – Later on, people would argue whether this was really there in Marx or whether this is kind of a result of Engels, you know, interpretation of Marx that then took hold within German social democracy during the 1880s, 1890s. And uh, but essentially, the as you said, the the basic thrust of that was that there's an underlying material basis to society, which requires a socialist movement to, you know, consolidate certain political power and for example, as you have with the growth of German social democracy um, during the uh, 1890s, but it allows them to sort of hesitate on this question of when is the decisive moment by which the political transformation will take place. Um, it allows them to sort of bide their time until the conditions of um, the, the material and social conditions of reproduction are you know, ripe for that kind of moment, mm-hmm. which people argue was also then um, – as a result, it kind of moderated German social democracy into this ever-present weight rather than active seizure of, of political power, which is then what you would have with the Leninist tradition later on. Right. Well said. I like that you brought us there because the, the one of the necessary outgrowths, I think people too readily jump. They draw a straight line from Marx and Engels directly to Lenin. Mm-hmm. They leave out that experience of social democracy, of early social democracy, in some cases, Marxian yeah. social democracy, or um, some of the other figures that we can get to. Uh, so Karl Kautsky, it was sort of the Pope of Marxism, the sort of uh, heir apparent to Engels once Engels passed away. Um, and mm-hmm. Kautsky, as you, as you rightly point to, sort of reformulates Marxism and establishes an institutional stronghold in Germany the German Social Democratic Party. And there's all kinds of contradictions that uh, arise from the institutionalization of class politics, right? Once you have that party, the maintenance of the party suddenly finds itself at the head of everyone's concerns. And I think we've all been there, right? I think folks in DSA, in, in some respects, can, can, can kind of... S- I mean, if, if you don't sympathize with this in DSA, then you're not paying attention, right? Sure. Because there's something about there's something about whenever you institutionalize a movement, right? You find that the pressures and the material constraints of institutionalization will begin to assert themselves. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I think the politics. You know, tell me if you think I'm right about this. I think the politics of the German Social Democratic Party and Karl Kautsky were really altered by that institutionalization, uh, which Lenin would seize on that later, right, with the adoption of war credits uh, by the German Social Democrats. And so maybe what's, what's your take on that? I mean, this is something that's relatively new. There were there was the first international, right? I mean, but it was a loose confederation and it broke apart 
pretty easily in the end mm-hmm. uh, due to internal conflicts between Bakunin and Marx and, and other folks, LaSalle, the French, uh, who are always sort of up to no good, <laughs> according to Marx. Uh, but the Second International was this new thing, and it really gained institutional permanence in a certain way. So what, what do you make of that second manifestation? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, um, it's really easy to forget just how robust of a movement the Second International was. And I think in some ways it's actually gotten an unfortunate historical legacy attached to it, um, you know, precisely because of the war. But actually uh, – so – you know, to, to come back, for example, to Engels and this question of political strategy, um, Engels was, uh, I think, somewhat annoyed with Kautsky because his uh, one of Engels' later texts was edited by the German Social Democrats to make him seem as if he was a supporter of uh, the kind of peaceful parliamentary road to, to socialism and then to communism. Whereas, you know, Engels kind of always emphasized that there needed to be a radical rupture or break with the parliamentary tradition. Mm-hmm. But Bracketing that aside, German social democracy was very successful. Um, they, you know, they went from being a party that was outlawed under the Bismarck regime to a party, eventually, you know, in a couple of decades, to being the party that had the most seats in in uh, German parliament. Um, so that in itself was, I think, a significant historical change. Um, but you're right that there was always a tension um, between the actual practices of of the SPD and its sort of broad political goal. So um, in the Erfurt program of 1891, mm-hmm. um, they still posit socialism and revolution as their their ultimate goal. But um, in terms of their practices, um, there's, a, you know, their practices were always a lot more moderate than their stated goals were. And I think that this is, again, this it kind of leads us back to this question of how the left should approach institutional power, because I don't see that there's a very apparent solution to what, you know, and I think, you know, sticking to one or the other of these poles is going to um, lead to problems later on. But I think the trick is to how to navigate between these two poles or hold them constantly in tension, which, I mean, you know, because of the war, we never really know what the legacy of the SPD would have been. And, you know, a lot of things changed by the, were changed by that historical event, but it would have been interesting to see how the SPD would have progressed otherwise. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back. I mean, I think that uh, you mentioned that Engels uh, was constantly at odds with Kautsky and some of the other German Social Democrats because he was really upholding the legacy of the First International, uh, and they really did kind of see a more uh, radical break with capitalism, an insurrectionary kind of uh, revolt, right? With uh, you know perhaps the Paris Commune being kind of like the vision. Of course, of course, with the amendments <laughs> that Marx makes uh, following the defeat of the Paris Commune, right? Uh, yeah. Being that you can't just take up the machinery, the existing state machinery, you have to sort of, uh, you know, change it and alter it and wield it for yourself, for the working class. Um, mm-hmm. So you can say something about that if you'd like. But what I'm getting at is that it seems like, as with all conceptions of the state, as you rightly point to, Kautsky and the German SPD, their conception of the state is going to alter because of material, you know, concerns, because of pressing material concerns, which in their cases, now it's really difficult to uphold Marx and Engels formulation in the manifesto that the state is the executive committee of the bourgeoisie. 
It's hard mm-hmm. to uphold that when the German Social Democratic Party, with all of their labor unions and all that kind of stuff, hold a significant portion of the parliament. It's it would at least it would at least force one to have a more nuanced conception about you know working class integration into the state machinery. Uh, so so what what's your take on that? And what is what is what is Kautsky and maybe even Bernstein? We haven't talked about Bernstein yet, but yeah, uh, what, what do they do with the Marxian formulation of the state in, in the Second International? Yeah, so um, that's a big question, but I think uh, the. With Marx, you have a more or less consistent um, emphasis on the, ne- you know, the necessity for a radical rupture, a revolutionary transformation of the existing state machinery. Mm-hmm. So um, with the Paris Commune, of course, one of the significant elements of it is, for, is the abolition of the standing army, right? Is you have a republican moment where people, the people themselves take up arms and you know, stand to protect what, this kind of political ground that they've staked out. Mm-hmm. Um, so – Marx and Engels, you know, constantly grappled with this question of what do we do with the bureaucracy? What do we do about the standing army as, you know, the two of the most typical manifestations of the way that the state, as they said, stands above society, positions itself above society and is essentially parasitic upon it. Um, With with Kautsky and with uh, German social democracy, you have a strategic shift where the party then is able to infiltrate certain state institutions, namely the German parliament, in order then to change the relationship within the within it and the existing state institutions. So basically, later critics would write that German social democracy suffered from an instrumentalist understanding of the state, hmm. where basically you could occupy a certain state institution or take hold of it and use that state institution to socialist ends without really understanding how the, the structural constraints of that institution are going to transform your party, mm-hmm. what your party then sees as feasible versus unfeasible in terms of this larger goal of socialism, and without appreciating the amount of resistance that that party is going to see from other state institutions that are completely hostile to socialist goals. For example, from the army, which could potentially lead to a kind of Bonapartist or, you know, even fascist coup. Um, And, you know, from the active mobilization of of uh, the bourgeoisie just within the conservative parties in the parliament. So um, so they would they argued that German social democracy kind of relied too too much on a not only a linear vision of history, but also a linear vision of the relationship between economics and politics, where because the social relations of production favored the advancement of socialism that would then neatly correspond to the success of socialism and politics, which was not the case ultimately. Very well said though. It's a very complex question as you, as you rightly pointed to, but you handled that very well. I, I like, I like your formulation there. I mean, it's, it seems like we're, we're really, uh, we're, we're, we're previewing some of the critiques of the state and the instrumentalism and stuff like that, 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 that it will come later on down the road in the 1960s and 70s. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one way to look at this perhaps, and this is very relevant to say the case in Greece and in and, and the failures, unfortunately, of, of some of the hopeful uh, sparks and shoots of socialism that, that have happened in the last several years. I mean, you might say that Kautsky and the German SPD suffered under the same problem, which is to say that you either change the state or the state changes you. Yeah. 
that might be that might be a really good way to look at this. Uh, and and unfortunately, if you don't understand how or you don't have the capacities to alter the state and its its relationship to the various classes in the in the economy, then the state will change you. Uh, and that seems to have befallen Kautsky and uh, his comrades in the German SPD when they adopted war credits uh, leading up to World War One, which threw the German uh, Workers' Party wholeheartedly into an imperialist, an inter-imperialist war, which mm-hmm. then kicked off a whole host of polemical <laughs> exchanges from Lenin among uh, many others. So maybe spell that moment, spell that uh, transition out for us a little bit. Sure. Um, so, you know, the main contribution of Lenin to these to these debates is to reassert the importance of the state as a coercive power and a coercive instrument in the hands of, of the dominant class and the ruling class, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, Lenin, of course, cut his teeth on these, a lot of these internal polemics within the Russian social democratic movement um, during the turn of the century. But throughout, he emphasized this coercive capacity of the state. Uh, basically, that uh, Russian social democracy, you know, should opportunistically try to assert its its power within existing state institutions if it can, um, but it should never lose sight of the the fact that at some point you do need a kind of th- there's going to be a moment of reckoning, right, where mm-hmm. you're going to have a situation of dual power as you did in Russia in 1917 between the Petrograd Soviet and the provisional government, mm-hmm. and sooner or later you are going to have um, this clash where uh, because the situation of dual power is unsustainable. So really, Lenin argues that Kautsky and Bernstein, among others, were doing a, a disservice to, to the works of Marx and Engels by writing out the, you know, the real revolutionary implications of, of their writings and trying to tame them and you know, turn them essentially into good social democrats when they were something much more than that. Interesting. So maybe it'd be a good time to spell out some of the differences here, because I think I, I think I mean, I, I agree with uh, Lenin's broad critique of the Germans um, and there were significant failures. I mean, if folks in my audience who have read up on uh, the failed German revolution, uh, they folks will at least perhaps know the fate of Rosa Luxemburg and uh, her comrades during that time and afterwards. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how Rosa fits into this because she's a a, a luminary and an important figure in in a lot of the debates during that time. Mm -hmm. But the the key difference here, because we're we're getting back to sort of the material political implications of state theoretical orientations, and that we would really be remiss in failing to acknowledge that Lenin's context, as you say, he cut his teeth on these sort of Russian, he was a very international kind of guy. He was a, you know, European kind of guy, right? He had to come in on a train uh, in 1917 because he had been in exile and in in countries all across uh, Europe and the UK. But his context was clearly Russia, which was czarist. It was, uh, you know, authoritarian to the nth degree. It was a feudal agrarian society. In large part, of course, there were sort of burgeoning industrial sectors, uh, but they were relatively small and marginal in the in the broader economic, uh, you know, scale of production in Russia. Now, uh, contrast that with Kautsky's environment, which is this industrializing, uh, advanced democracy, at least relatively speaking, in that moment in Germany. So you have industrial production, um, you have an advanced democracy, 
Um, mm-hmm. Now, how far along they were, you know, we can talk about that. We can quarrel about, well, actually, there was a passive revolution that happened in Germany during World War One, where the Junkers were all slaughtered. And, and that actually is what brought in real capitalism. And there wasn't actually real industrial capitalism in Germany. And if I'm losing people, ignore what I just said. <laughs> Those are some of the hot debates in political Marxism and elsewhere and, and brainy, dusty IR theory and, you know, German uh, yep. politics. But uh, if you're interested, you know, dive in. It's they, These are interesting debates about was it capitalism, was it not? But nonetheless, maybe spell out the differences between the two contexts between Lenin and Kautsky and maybe how that drove uh, their differences and how they oriented their state theory. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think you you captured a good amount of it when you point to the different uh, levels of economic development in uh, in Russia versus versus Germany, right? So, um, if we were to take some interpretations of Marx and Engels at their word, then um, the place where one could reasonably expect a, a transition to socialism would be in Germany rather than in Russia, which was the you know the most backwards of the of um, you know the so-called European chain of imperialist nations um, around the turn of the 20th century and during the war, but the implications of that basically, you know, led Lenin to believe that it was it was futile to try to um, infiltrate the state because the state was not simply an entity that could reconcile class antagonisms, as Bernstein and even Kautsky to some extent believed, but rather it was a force that stood above society. And per angles, it increasingly separated itself from society. Hmm. And of course, you have you see that with the Tsarist bureaucracy, which was you know one of the most top loaded bureaucracies in the country uh, in Europe at the moment. Um, you have um, the kind of stifling of civil society, and you at the time, and you have uh, with the kind of close collaboration between the Tsarist bureaucracy and the kind of leading industrial sectors of the Russian bourgeoisie. So Lenin basically seeing all this argues in State and Revolution, which 1917, that we need to forget about sort of infiltrating the state. We need to consider the state essentially as a special organization of uh, armed men mm-hmm. who are the product of this irreconcilable antagonism between social classes. So the implication then is that whereas Kautsky would see the, the task of the proletariat being to take over the bourgeois state and then gradually the state withers away by virtue of the presence of socialist forces within the state institutions. For Lenin, you have a kind of two-stage moment where first you have the proletarian revolution. And then once the uh, the state is seized, and he is very you know emphatic about that, then only then do you have the possible withering of the proletarian state through the kind of revolutionary policies that that will be put in. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, uh, essentially, you're right to say that all I think Lenin probably won that battle. Uh, certainly, the German Social Democratic Party went in for the war credits. They went headlong uh, to their demise, by the way, into an inter-imperialist war, which is World War One, And uh, they really lost a lot of ground in, in doing so, and they never really recovered um, in, in a variety of ways. And so Lenin in, in the, in the, uh, you know, annals of history has won that debate, at least in practice. Yeah. Although that there's, um, there's sympathy among, uh, some, you know, sectors of DSA for the kind of secondary legacy of the second international. Mm-hmm. Um, I think 
I think that, you know, that's one of the things that um, DSA is going to have to debate internally within the coming years as to, you know, what kind of strategy, whether, you know, it's reasonable to emulate the second international strategy um, in the present day context. So we'll see. It's a question that's still open, I think. Yeah, I mean, that, that's well put. I probably overstated that. Um, I myself am far more, uh, uh, you know, interested in, in the kind of approach that Kautsky has, I would say, um, given the kind of, tran- you know, the transformation in um, the capitalist state that we will talk about in the neo-Marxian debate. But but I think there are probably better ways to access that than just going straight back to Kautsky. I think you probably agree with that. I think there are more yeah. robust uh, uh, ways to deal with yeah, those sure. problems than to just say, yes, let's let's read Kautsky and do what he did. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, most of us have a pretty reasonable conception of what would happen in Russia in trying to achieve uh, following the the civil war there and the, the invasion of, of, of you know, what was it, tw- uh, over a dozen foreign armies on Russian soil. They finally defeated the bourgeois imperialist forces and had to establish socialism in one country. Mm-hmm. So the legacy of Leninism uh, really suffered, I would say, under the structural historical constraints of having to uh, you know, leave behind the, the the internationalist communist world communist system that never really came to fruition, and they had to settle for communism in one country. Um, but but that's that's a fertile ground for our next uh, figure, which is we haven't brought up yet, which is Trotsky. Leon Trotsky was a uh, pivotal you know actor in the Russian Revolution. He led the Red Army. What does Trotsky have to say about this? Because certainly the legacy of Trotskyism and their their theories of the state and their strategic orientation looms large on the American left. So talk to us about Trotsky. Yeah. So uh, Trotsky, of course, has has had a long legacy in uh, the history of 20th century Marxism for obvious reasons, more so in the United States rather than in in Russia. Um, But, you know, he, of course, followed Lenin in some of these aspects, the discussion of dual power as a as a situation that needs to be overcome one way or the other um, with the advancement of, you know, revolutionary forces um, and this kind of ongoing conception of politics as a as warfare. Later on, of course, in the 30s, he became very critical of the development of the Soviet Union under Stalin, which he essentially saw as, you know, manifesting the worst elements of bureaucratic collectivism. He saw Stalinism as a new form of uh, Bonapartism. Mm -hmm. And, um, but, you know, the other contribution that I think is making a comeback is uh, this idea of combined and uneven development, where we we can no longer sort of anticipate that the most economically advanced nations are also going to be the ones most ripe for revolutionary situations. So it's not necessarily Mm -hmm. the the places where capitalism is most advanced and most forward-looking that is the most fertile ground for revolution, but rather that everything is kind of overdetermined by a number of forces, uh, the place of the country within the broader networks of economic development and the so-called imperialist chain, mm-hmm. and uh, various political and cultural and social legacies that are already in place. Um, so all of this kind of combines to create a, a revolutionary situation in some aspects, but maybe kind of a 
potential for reaction in others. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, uneven combined development is something that looms large on the, in the academic, uh, in many academic circles. Those of us who uh, spend too much time with dusty books will have come across it for sure. Um, but it seems to be, I mean, correct me here, I'm, I'm a little shady on it, to be honest with you, but it seems to be an attempt to sort of revivify uh, the possibility of sort of a radical break of sorts, which is to say that even though a country is a little bit, I don't want to say backward, because that implies a teleological development, although it's kind of hard to avoid with Trotsky. So I'll go ahead and say it. Even though a country is a little bit economically or politically backwards compared to the more advanced capitalist juggernauts of the world, that doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that they can't undergo a radical um, and fairly swift uh, political and economic transformation. Am am I getting that right? Yeah, uh, I think so. Um, I would also, you know, say that this, this kind of, um, emphasis and you have it in, in Lenin as well, um, you know, reemphasizes the political element of, of Marxist thought, um, or rather you could say maybe the strategic or tactical element, Mm. um, because a lot sort of hinges then on the capacity to mobilize political forces and to, um, you know, act in the conjuncture, so to speak. Um, so Lenin and Trotsky are kind of seen as, um, points of a, of a break with the previous tradition that we discussed, which is social, you know, German social democracy, second international um, economism, so to speak. Um, but, but yeah, that's, I think that that's uh, an important element of this thinking about combined and even development as well. Interesting. So let's, let's, let's take a step backwards. We're missing, I don't, I don't want to skip over Rosa, Rosa Luxemburg. She's a, she's a prominent figure. She has a lot of really interesting things to say, not so much about the state, but about imperialism. And she has a, a very potent critique of the, of the single party state that she predicted uh, would arise in Russia should the Bolsheviks uh, be, be successful. What what do you take uh, as as Rosa Luxemburg's uh, primary contribution, uh, both in that moment and w- what's the kind of uh, import uh, of her thinking for our time? Yeah, um, well, I mean, her thinking has been, um, you know, there's been interest in her thought for for a little while now, um, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's it's interesting because she, you know, developed one of the most prominent, I think, democratic critiques of Leninism out of all of his contemporaries in the sense that um, she argued that the kinds of policies that you saw emerging in Russia under the Bolsheviks around 1917, 1918, so immediately after the revolution, um, would lead to the um, emergence of a kind of um, centralized party uh, in control of the Tsarist state apparatus that the Bolsheviks kind of inherited, Mm -hmm. um, but really did not work substantially to transform, um, especially, you know, you, we could argue that this was because of the ongoing civil war, the kind of conditions that um, the party found themselves in, where it was easier for them to to take hold of, of existing state institutions and to use them for their own capacity rather than to radically transform them. Mm-hmm. But um, but with Luxembourg's critique, then you, you, um, you have this argument that it's, that it's not only the party, um, but also um, uh, that it's equally important to have channels for the participation of the masses um, on a broader scale. So councils as one thing that should not be abolished in favor simply of the democratic centralism of, you know, of, um, 
of the party that Lenin advocated. All right. So we've covered all of the luminaries leading up to World War One and thereafter, after the Russian Revolution. We got Marx and Engels. We got Kalsky, Bernstein, Lenin, Luxembourg, Trotsky. There's some other figures in there that we could have brought in. And some I know folks have their pet theorists or their pet, uh, you know, Bolsheviks or whomever. But they're <laughs> going to be mad that we didn't cover, you know. Uh, why, why didn't you do uh yeah or bukharin where's bukharin or yeah. where you know i mean sure maybe bukharin deserves a place um mm-hmm. who's to say uh but uh but we're gonna leave all that behind for now and we're gonna jump to a figure who straddles the line historically in a somewhat paradoxical sense that's antonio gramsci Mm-hmm. who was an Italian communist who, who who is very much a contemporary of all of the people that we just mentioned. Uh, but that context is oftentimes lost. Uh, and, and Gramsci is really treated as a contemporary figure. And there are good reasons for that. Gramsci's notion of the state as the, the integral, integral state and hegemony has a lot of resonances with the kind of uh, state formations that we still live under today. And so that, that's probably why he has such a contemporary resonance. But politically speaking, I mean, he was really embedded in the Third International in, in that context. He was a Leninist um, in, in many senses. And so tell us who uh, Antonio Gramsci was and maybe embed uh, him in his historical context for us. Sure. Um, so Gramsci is really interesting because, you know, out of all the Marxists of the the period that we're covering, so pre-World War II Marxists, he is the one who, whose, I think, legacy has been um, most well-received among, you know, contemporary academics, but also just in general, sort of, you know, political discourse, right? So uh, he, in, in many ways, he's seen as a bridge between the Marxism of Lenin and Trotsky and the Marxism of um, Althusser and uh, the Frankfurt School and contemporary cultural studies, right? right. Um, so as you pointed out, for example, this notion of hegemony is something that is a fairly frequent part of leftist discourse for reasons we can talk about later. But uh, but Gramsci, yes, Gramsci was a leading figure in the Italian Communist Party. He was you know, a leading theoretician of the time. Most of his writings, of course, were, um, or the writings that he's most known for come out of the prison notebooks, which were composed during uh, his lengthy incarceration in, uh, over the course of the 1930s under the Mussolini regime, so where he died uh, towards the end of um, the 30s, not long after being released out of prison. Um, but Gramsci is interesting, I think, because there you get a sense of um, this base and superstructure problematic that we mentioned at the beginning of this conversation um, starts to get rethought or reworked with this idea of the integral state. That is the state that's not simply an entity that's superimposed upon a civil society or the relations of production, but rather it's a state that actively performs an educational function and a legitimating function for the reproduction of the social totality as a whole. Mm-hmm. So spell it. Let's let's talk about hegemony being the key kind of buzzword. I use it on this show quite often. Uh, sometimes I'm using it in a more technical sense. Uh, sometimes I'm using it just kind of in a in a more kind of uh, you know everyday kind of sense. I've alluded oftentimes when I've teased people with this state theory episode, it's been when I've brought up hegemony in the technical sense, and I say, don't worry, folks. If you're confused by that, I'll explain it later. So now is the time. 
we're going to get into the nitty gritty of hegemony. Uh, what is it? How does it work? And uh, maybe bring into to, to play this distinction between the war of position and the war of maneuver. And I know that I even get that confused even to this day sometimes. So I know my guests will. So let's let's spell that distinction out as, as carefully as we can. And I, I know you're the man to do it. So let's see what you got. How, how can you explain that to to the neophytes and the uh, the veterans alike? Sure. Um, well, I guess we can. The easiest way to think about this is. If we consider what – if we first ask what is the basis of uh, a social order, right? So if we follow Marx in saying that something like the state is really the executive committee of the bourgeoisie or in in, 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 in any sense that the state enacts the preferences of the most economically dominant class, um, why is it that revolution has not happened or what is it that – allows most people, especially in the kind of contemporary democratic context, um, where arguably, you know, people have a greater voice of, and participate to a greater degree than ever before. What prevents revolution from happening? What prevents people from seeing their true interests uh, come to light? Um, and Gramsci develops this idea of hegemony um, primarily as a um, as a way for the working class to build their own power, but also as a way to understand the kinds of relations of legitimation and consent that emanate from the dominant, uh, the dominant classes and the way that the way that they perpetuate themselves as being seen legitimate in the eyes of the dominate. Um, so hegemony, I typically associate with terms like consent and legitimation, mm -hmm. um, basically to try to understand this complex dynamic of, the relationship between revolutionary politics and the social order. So let me let me try to refine that to see if I'm if I can sort of uh, distill that for our audience and for myself. So it's really a concern. So the base and superstructure model, as well as maybe the Lenin you know Lenin's uh, model and some, and all of the others that precede it, just sort of presuppose one of two things. You either suppose that that people's relationship to the state is kind of a detached one. That the state sort of functions externally and it coerces you to do things from the outside, but it never – it doesn't really enter your soul, to put it in one way, right? You never really internalize the state. It doesn't really play – it doesn't structure your life in a material sense. You sort of have an independent existence as a worker, as a member of the working class outside of the bourgeois bourgeois – the state that's controlled by the bourgeoisie. That's one way to look at it. Or the second way is perhaps that – well, of course, that's not possible. Of course, we internalize the state. But then the question is, how does that happen? Um, and it seems like what you're describing there is Gramsci's trying to explain like how it is that individual subjects become like themselves, you know, irreversibly intertwined with the state. Does that does that sound like the right kind of problematic? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I think it's interesting that you bring in this um this question of the the subject and uh, you know the subject the assumption of the subject as a given within um, contemporary liberal democracy or mm -hmm. you know modern ways of thinking about politics right so um, the assumption is that we have a kind of car for ourselves we have um, a space of interior interiority where our subjectivity resides and where um, th that in some ways is always you know resistant to outside encroachment. So there's a space for autonomy. There's a space for uh, personal decision making that something like the state cannot, uh, 
fully penetrate. So it can coerce me perhaps to act in certain ways, um, as you know, the Habesian state might do to, to the subject, but it can never fully, um, mold my own, um, self-understanding. And I think with Gramsci, Gramsci is often seen as the fourth father of, um, of contemporary critical theory that, that, um, takes issues with this liberal account, because really for Gramsci, um, one of his interests is the way that education functions as a way of of creating subjects that actually repeat and participate in this enactment of legitimacy on, um, on the part of the dominant class. Right. right. Um, so so yeah, there's this um, there's this belief that cl- uh, class structures not only dominate um, material relations but also ideological and by proxy then political ones. Interesting. So, so with with Gramsci, we have perhaps for the first time an awareness, an intense awareness, an obsession, even with how we as individuals become subjects to the state, whether state projects, class projects, you know, institutional projects, and you can see why Gramsci is such a contemporary figure because, really, you might argue the entire social scientific disciplinary disciplinary apparatus really takes up this project in more or less conscious ways. Like some, some of them, you know, give Gramsci a lot of credit for their disciplinary, uh, you know, foundations and, and many of them do not. But as I think it was Gramsci who wrote, you know, all, all of the most pressing problems that, that are of society uh, boiled down to political science. So I guess you found yourself in the yeah. appropriately Gramscian <laughs> discipline after all. So, although, although it probably meant something very different than what we take to be political science today. Uh, absolutely. So. <laughs> right. There, there's, a, there's certainly a gap. Um, so let's use Gramsci as a, as a jumping off point to talk about uh, getting into the neo-Marxian state debate. Sure. And that creepy sound could only mean one thing. That's right, people. Part one of this week's episode is over. I hope you all enjoyed Marxian state theory from Marx to Gramsci. Part two is going to be dropping in just a matter of a couple of days. We're going to cover neo-Marxian state theory from after Gramsci to present. We're going to cover the famous state debate, which revolved around British Marxist Ralph Miliband, and founder of the Socialist Register, by the way, and French Marxist, Greco-French Marxist, I should say, Nikos Poulansas. And that debate circulates around this silly notion of a structuralist interpretation of Marxism versus an instrumentalist, uh, you know, uh, interpretation of Marxism. And uh, we're going to talk about how that's kind of a silly formulation. If none of this, if you, if you have no idea what the hell I'm talking about, well, hey, all the more reason to tune in, right? So don't sweat it. We're going to break it down for you. Hit me with questions on the Patreon if you should have any, and I will do my best to try to address them and point you in the right direction if you're interested. Hit me with questions on the Twitter if you're not a patron. Uh, if you know, If you can't afford it, totally understand. I still want to be here for you, man. The Dead Pundit is here for all of you. Hit me with your questions at Dead Pundits on Twitter. But if you should have some disposable income, by all means, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and subscribe at the $5 or $8 a month range. And uh, you will get access to me, the Dead Pundit. And you will also get access to the B-side that's going to be dropping in the next few days 
Raphael and I are going to have kind of a wrap-up session about this episode. We're going to give some afterthoughts. We recorded that a week or two after our interview, so we had some time to digest what we had said, to try to address some of the shortcomings, to try to clear up some of the misunderstandings and contextualize this project, because we're both super passionate about the importance, the centrality even, of Marxian and neo-Marxian state theory to socialist organizing. This is not just high-minded, theoretical, dusty, bearded people, right? Uh, that we talk about in history class, or the the the, the, the dusty academics, you know, talk, sit around, sit in seminars, and discuss these heady ideas. These are everyday important considerations for how to win socialism for regular ass people. Uh, I do not actually see any contradiction whatsoever in having an episode called "Socialism for Regular Ass People." And then two weeks later, having this really super highfalutin, high-minded episode around neo-Marxian state theory, right? I see those two as absolutely intertwined and crucially interdependent pursuits. And uh, so, Raphael and I are going to talk about why that's the case. So, I will shut up now, and I'll see you all in a couple of days. Dead Pundit, out. Oh, this you crazy mother... Yeah.